Well, this morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, and so you could open your Bible there if you would like to. It's an important text on baptism. This is the text that says in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But before we talk about what this text says about baptism, we just really need to understand it in its context. Ephesians 4, as we saw last week, remember we looked at verses 1 to 3, is primarily about unity. See, Paul wanted the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling. God had called them to himself in a powerful way, in a life-changing way, and he made them alive with Christ and he united them to Christ. God had put them into Christ and into his body, the church, and in Christ, The greatest division in the ancient world, the Jew-Gentile division, was eliminated. Jews and Gentiles were brought together. They were made one in Christ. Now, it's hard for us today to grasp the significance of that, but really that was the the greatest divide in the ancient world, the Jew-Gentile division. And I think it would be difficult even for us to exaggerate how extremely hostile those two groups were to one another. They hated one another. They had no relations together, if at all possible. And the Jews would even shake the dust out of their garments if they traveled through Gentile lands on their journey. And so when they came back to Israel, they would shake the Gentile dust off of them. And now they were in the promised land. But in Christ, all of that hostility and all of that enmity has been removed. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, For he himself, speaking about Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one. And then verse 15 goes on to explain that Christ has created from the two groups one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And then in verse 16, Jesus Christ, our peace, has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And the picture here is of Christ making peace between us, between Jews and Gentiles, and then of him making peace between us together as one and God. And so he himself is our peace both on the horizontal level between others and then on the vertical level between us and God. And then the peace that, or the unity that, that Paul want, urges us to maintain is part of our walk worthy of our, our calling. We've been called with this calling. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 1. Therefore, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Last week we looked at that verse. We looked also at verse 2. But with all humility, this is how we're to walk. This is a, a walk worthy of our calling. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Before we get kind of too deep again into our text, I want to take you to another text this morning. I want to take you to John 
chapter 17. And so if you would, turn with me to John chapter 17. And this is where Jesus prayed for the unity of his church. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, and it includes really a a most remarkable request for the unity of the church. And if you look at verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This was Jesus' final prayer with his disciples, his final prayer on the earth, And the unity of his church was on his heart. Jesus wanted those who would believe through the word of the apostles to be one. He wanted us, because this is really speaking about us, those who would believe through their word. This really descends all the way to us. He wanted us to be one. He wanted us, because it is speaking about us, he wanted us to be one even just as he was one with his father. And so this is really a a most remarkable request. And he wanted this in verse 21. Look at it again. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so the question for us this morning is, how is this prayer going to be answered? Or even probably better, how was this prayer answered? Because this prayer of our Lord has been answered. It has been accomplished through our union with Jesus Christ. We have been immersed into him and into his body by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in us and we are in him just as he prayed. And we are therefore united together as one in the way that the Lord prayed. See, there's a a massive difference between believing that unity is something that we must achieve versus believing that unity is something that God has already accomplished in Christ. In 1948, the World Council of Churches was founded, and here's a quote from their website that I, I pulled back in 2017. It says this, quote, The World Council of Churches is a fellowship of churches which confess the Lord Jesus Christ as God and Savior, according to the Scriptures, and therefore seek to fulfill together their common calling to the glory of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a community of churches on the way to visible unity in one faith and one Eucharistic fellowship, expressed in worship and in common life in Christ. It seeks to advance towards this unity as Jesus prayed for his followers, so that the world may believe. And then they reference John 17, 21, which we just read. And that's the end of the quote. This council consists of churches that confess Jesus as God and Savior. And again, their goal is to advance towards this unity as Jesus prayed in John 17, 21. 
They say that they're on their way to visible unity. And this kind of understanding of an aim towards unity belongs to the World Council of Churches, and it's also the view of what we call the ecumenical movement. Ecumenical means uh, belonging to the universal church or representing a number of churches. And so the World Council of Churches and the ecumenical movement believe that our mission is to produce or promote or create or achieve or in some other way bring about the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And to bring about this unity that, that Jesus prayed for, they're going to accept as members any church that's willing to confess Jesus as God and Savior. Now, for the most part, remember this was started in 1948, for the most part, initially it was the liberal churches that joined the World Council of Churches. And so the, the liberal churches, quote churches, confessed that, that they confessed Jesus was God, but they didn't believe things like the inspiration and authority of Scripture. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. They didn't believe in Jesus' divine nature. They didn't believe in his bodily resurrection or justification by grace alone through faith alone. They didn't believe in the penal substitutary, substitutionary atonement. In other words, this group was, was seeking to create a unity of churches without really any doctrinal foundation. And what that is, is it's really a unity in name only. And it was, and it it is to this day, still a a unity of those who confess Christ in name only. Here's another quote from their website. Quote, World Council of Church membership member churches can be found in all regions of the world and include most of the world's Orthodox churches, Eastern and Oriental in brackets, as well as African-instituted, Anglican, Assyrian, Baptist, Evangelical, Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, Moravian, Old Catholic, Pentecostal, Reformed, United-slash-Uniting, and Free-slash-Independent Churches, Disciples of Christ and Friends, and then in brackets, that's the Quakers, end quote. Now, if you, if you ask me, this is a, a very shallow form of unity, and it's definitely not the unity that Jesus prayed for. But this view of unity has really infiltrated the church today. You see, many people see unity in terms of cooperation and association and everyone kind of just getting together, getting along, even though there's a fundamental disagreement on doctrine or even sometimes often a fundamental disagreement on the gospel and salvation. See, many people think that the unity that we, that we're to have is an outward unity founded on the lowest possible confession of who Jesus is or of what he did. And I would submit to you this morning that that is not true Christian unity. That's not the unity that Jesus prayed for, nor is it the unity that we're going to see in Ephesians chapter four. The ecumenical movement and the what I'm calling here the ecumenical spirit, the ecumenical kind of ideal, which says let's, let's all get together in Jesus' name, but let's not be overly concerned about who Jesus really is or what he accomplished by his life and death or how he wants us to operate as his disciples. That's not the unity that's going to cause the world to believe according to Jesus' word. And when you think about it, really the majority in that movement, in the World Council of Churches and in those list of churches that I just read out, 
They're not even believers to begin with. And so how could that be Christian unity? The unity that Jesus is praying for in verse 20 of chapter 17 is a unity of believers. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus himself has come to live in these people. Verse 23 again, I in them and you in me. And so this unity that Jesus prayed for is not a unity that, that can be achieved or produced by man. Especially men who ignore the differences and the, and, and work together towards some kind of nebulous common purpose. This is a unity produced by God and it begins when Jesus dwells in one's heart through faith. The unity that we see Jesus praying for here was, has already been accomplished in the church. In other words, Jesus' prayer has already been answered. And that is why we see in our text in Ephesians chapter 4 that Christian unity is something that we preserve and not something that we produce. And so if you're a Christian, you belong to the one body, the church, and you are united to everyone else in that body. And our unity is similar then to the unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct divine persons existing in one divine essence. There's one God, three persons. And we also are multiple persons, many members, but we belong to the one body of which Jesus is the head. And so if you look at verse 21 again, if you're still in John 17, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And this unity that Jesus is talking about then, you either have it or you don't. You're either part of the body or you're not. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. There's really no kind of hazy ground there. You're either in or not. You either have it or you don't. And our calling with which we have been called was has supernaturally created a unity that we are to be eager to maintain. And this unity then is founded on the truth. And it's founded on the reality of our salvation. It's founded on the work of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I called our message today the foundation of unity. See, biblical unity is founded on truth, and it's founded on spiritual reality, and it's really founded ultimately upon God. And so let's read our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. Let's start again in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now as we begin here, let's notice a few things first of all in, in starting. Notice that there's this sevenfold repetition of the word one. There is one body, one spirit, you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And these seven ones are the foundation of Christian unity. And they're meant to motivate us to walk worthy and to seek to preserve this unity in the spirit or this unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the idea of unity is further enhanced by the fourfold use of the word all in verse six. And we'll see as we go that this is speaking about all Christians. All of us have the one God as our father. All of us have him over us and he works through all of us in his church and he lives in all of us. And notice too, as we begin that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here in verse four, there's one spirit. That's the Holy spirit in verse five, one Lord, which speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse six, one God and father, which is God, our father. And so the Trinity is the foundation of our unity. Our unity is not something that we try to produce in a man-made way by downplaying doctrine. Instead, it's something that grows as we pursue the truth. And that's what we'll see as we continue on through chapter 4. And so what we'll see then this morning is seven fundamental doctrines that provide the basis for Christian unity. Seven fundamental doctrines that provide the basis for Christian unity. And as we look at this, this should really encourage us this morning you know, I, th- I think sometimes we can feel bad or, or sometimes we're maybe criticized because we won't work together with other churches or we won't join the World Council of Churches or other groups like them. We're not part of the ecumenical movement. And so we sometimes feel bad, like maybe in some way we're, we're hindering unity. The world looks at us and says we're divided when they see all of these denominations, and even sometimes other churches will, will think of us as, as narrow because we're hesitant to partner ourselves with them. And we hear things like, well, why won't you join our common cause, whatever that cause may be? And what we'll see is that we're, we're really more united than we often think. Our unity is and, and must be centered on Jesus Christ. Our unity is and must be based on the truth. And there's really no need to be ashamed of that. That's exactly what Paul lays out as he lays down these seven fundamental doctrines that, that are the basis of this unity that he calls the church to maintain. Now, this is also a great opportunity as we look at these to test our orthodoxy and ask ourselves this morning as we go through this, do we have the right foundation? Are we really in this unity? Are we part of what Jesus is talking about when he prays? And in other words, are we part of the one body? We can ask ourselves, are we saved by the one spirit? Do we have the one hope of our calling? Do we know the one Lord? Do we believe the one faith? Have we been baptized in the the one baptism? Are we sons of the one God and Father? And so all of these seven fundamental doctrines are going to begin like this as we go through. Are we, we are united because, or we are unified because, and then we'll kind of give the reason, and we're going to go through seven of these things here. So first of all, we are united because we belong to the same body in verse 4. Verse 4 says, there is one body. And so we are united because we belong to the same body. We are, if we are in Christ, then we are in his body. If we are not in Christ, then we are not in his body, and we have no part of the unity that, of what Paul is saying here. 
And so if you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, and look at that verse there, it says, and he, and the he there is God, God put all things under his, and that's speaking about Christ, and so God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so the church is the body of Christ. We already saw in 2.15 where Christ made Jews and Gentiles both one and created in himself one new man, which is called in verse 16, one body. In chapter 3, Paul talks about the mystery of the church. And then in verse 6, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so if you are in the church, you are part of the same body. Now, we've talked about the church the last number of weeks in our membership series. I'm not going to say kind of everything about that again. I'm not going to do that all again. But, but Paul is speaking here about what we call the universal church, the one body of believers that exists in heaven and on earth. And there's many local churches, but there's really only one body of Christ. There's only one bride of Christ. There's only one universal church. There's many members, but there's only one body. And every genuinely saved person from Acts 2 until the rapture belongs to the church. And they are the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. Whether they're alive on earth today or whether they're already in heaven, they belong to the church. And if you look at our our text again, if you look at verse 7, as we kind of go and we'll get into verse 7 next week, Paul's going to say then, but, the start of verse 7, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he's going to then talk about how we all have different gifts and different roles in the body. We are diverse, but we are united. And that's what, what Paul always speaks of when he talks about us, about this one body. There's one body and there's many members. Now, just to kind of go somewhere else and see this, I want to read a long passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we see this one body with many members there. Unity through diversity. And so 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Notice Paul brings the whole Trinity in there as well. Verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of, where would, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And if our unpresentable parts are treated with greater, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be, may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Then in verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so again, the idea here is that there's one body, there's many members. But look back at verse 13, this is how we became part of the body. And this is a very important verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so the unique work of the Holy Spirit is what made us part of, the, of this one body. This isn't talking here about about water baptism. This is talking about a baptism into the body of Christ when we were spiritually baptized. We were all, every Christian was immersed into this body. And it doesn't matter about our nationality or our social status. All believers were made to drink of the one Holy Spirit. And in him, we were all put into this one body. That's why Paul says, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. All of us were made to drink of the one spirit. And so all Christians belong to this body. All Christians have been baptized by the one spirit. And all Christians in the New Testament were also baptized in water as a picture of this reality. And so we're united because we belong to the same body. And that leads then to the second point. We, were, we are united because we are sealed by the same spirit. And again, we're back in Ephesians and, and verse 4. It says that there, there is one body and one spirit. So our unity is based on the fact that there is one Holy Spirit who baptized us into the one body. See, there's not different Holy Spirits. There's not a Holy Spirit for Jews and a Holy Spirit for Gentiles. There's not a, a Holy Spirit for the elite and another Holy Spirit for regular Christians. There is one Holy Spirit and he dwells in every believer. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
Well, let's go back to Ephesians here then and, and look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 18 as we kind of think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.18 says, for, for through him, and that's there through Christ, we both, speaking about Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. And so through Christ, Jews and Gentiles have access in the one spirit to the Father. Having been baptized into the body, the Holy Spirit now dwells in each and every believer. And so if you look at Ephesians 2.22, it says, In him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Every believer is indwelled by this one and the same Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian and you have no part of this unity that we're talking about here. And just to kind of see that, I want you to go, we're going to kind of flip around a little bit today. I want you to go to Romans chapter 8 and look at verse 8. So Romans 8, 8, and 9. Romans 8, verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so Christian unity is based on the fact that the one Holy Spirit has worked in our lives to bring us to salvation. And so if you ask, well, how can I know if I'm in the flesh or if the Spirit dwells in me? And I would say to that question, I would say, first of all, you don't feel the Holy Spirit. It's not a feeling that you can look for. But what you can do is look for the results of his work in your life. And so I would say things like this, well, do you recognize sin as sin? Because one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and bring us to repentance. Do you hate sin and do you despise it? Do you turn away from it? Do you, are you repenting of your sin? That's a a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation? Because the Holy Spirit points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're trusting Christ alone for your salvation and for your right standing with God, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And then finally, are you growing in Jesus Christ? Are you, are you growing in the likeness of Christ? And are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Can you look back on your life and see a progression of, of, of growth, maybe sometimes up and down, but you can see that you're being made more and more like Jesus Christ as you look back over the years? That's a sign of the Spirit's work in your life. Another text that I would take you to on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And so let's look at, at 2 Corinthians 3, 18, a great verse. Second Corinthians 3, 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so when we see somebody who's looking at the glory of of the Lord, somebody who's delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who's being transformed into the image of Christ, kind of from one step to another, from one degree of glory to another, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit's life. And so when we see that happening in somebody, when we see that transformation, or when when we even see it in our own lives, it can give us assurance that the, the Spirit is working in their life and that they have a share in the one Spirit with us. 
And so if we go back to Ephesians then, when the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, and he has worked in our lives to cause us to believe the gospel, according to the book of Ephesians, he seals us, and he acts as a guarantee in our life. And the guarantee is that what God started, he is going to finish. And so look at Ephesians 1 and verse 13. It says, in him, and again, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so the Spirit is a, a seal in our life. He's a guarantee that, that we're going to make it to our inheritance, that we're going to acquire the possession. And, and actually, it's that God is going to acquire us to the praise of his glory. And so we're united because we all have the same Spirit. The same Spirit has worked in our lives, bringing us to salvation. Number three, we're united because we're called to the same hope in verse 4. Again, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one and only one future hope for all believers. There is one heaven where we're all going to dwell with God forever. And every Christian presses toward this one hope of being glorified, of being cleansed of their sin, of dwelling forever in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be resurrected in bodies without sin to live forever in the place that Jesus prepared for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Holy Spirit made this call effective by giving us a new heart, by regenerating us in the new birth. We are called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that fellowship of being in Christ secures our eternal destiny. Each and every believer is guaranteed to make it through the trials of life and to make it to heaven. This is the hope of our calling, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. God has called us and he will ensure that his work in our lives never fails. And in the end, each and every believer is going to be resurrected to live with God forever and we will live together. That's our one hope. And hope is the certain expectation that God will bring about everything that he promised. And so we are united because we're pressing towards this one hope that belongs to our call. That was the third thing. A fourth unifying reality or a fourth fundamental doctrine that provides the basis for Christian unity is number four. We are united because we have the same Lord in verse five. There is one Lord verse 5. This one Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of Ephesians, the word Lord always refers to Jesus Christ, except in chapter 6, verse 5 and 9, where it clearly is speaking about earthly masters. And so if you look at Ephesians 1 and verse 2, it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. In chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, this was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our 
Lord. Wherever we see the word Lord in Ephesians, except in those two passages in chapter 6, it's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word Lord, we've looked at it before, it means master. It means the owner of something. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament used this word Lord, the, the Greek word is kurios, to translate the word Yahweh. And they did that because they were, they were superstitious about pronouncing the divine name. And so Yahweh became Kurios. Yahweh was the Lord. And so when Lord is used for Jesus Christ, it, it carries that full meaning that, it, that it's declaring Jesus to be God in human flesh. Here's what Charles Hodges in his commentary said about this. He says, quote, A Lord, in the proper sense, is both owner and sovereign. When used in reference to God or Christ, the word expresses these ideas in the highest degree. In, in other words, the idea of owner and sovereign. This is to the highest degree when we're talking about Jesus as Lord. Christ, and he continues, he says, Christ is the Lord. And he puts that in all cap locks, kind of, in, in other words, he's trying to say Christ is Yahweh in the Old Testament. Christ is the Lord. He is our Lord, i.e. our rightful owner and absolute sovereign, end quote. And so to be a Christian means that Jesus is your Lord, that he is your master, that he is your owner, that he is sovereign over your life. It means you're committed to following him. It means that you're committed to obeying his voice. It means you're committed to submitting your life to him, even taking up your cross and following him to the point of death. That's what it means to have Christ as our Lord. And if Jesus isn't your Lord, then he is not your Savior. Because he saves us to enable us to follow him and submit to him and live our lives in obedience to him. And much like we saw under the other headings, we could say that if that you either have Jesus, the one Lord, or you don't. He is either your Lord or he's not your Lord. And if he's your Lord, then you have the same Lord as everyone else who is a Christian. We are under this one Lord. Do you see that? So he is our unifying master, and he himself is our peace. But there's only one Lord, and that is the true Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will return and judge the living and the dead. See, Christian unity is founded on Jesus Christ, on who he is and what he has done. Let's go to the the book of 1 John here for a minute. John spoke about the importance of this right view of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 21, John says, I write to you. Not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
And so to deny Christ, whether it's his deity or his humanity or his lordship or his person or any other way to deny Christ is really to deny the Father and to forsake the only way of salvation. And so we need to have the true Christ. Our, Our unity is based on who Christ really is. In Acts 4.12, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so our unity is founded on the one Lord who saved us by his life and death. And then number five, we are united because we have the same faith. We have the same faith. And again, Ephesians 4 and verse 5, One Lord, one faith. Now, what does Paul mean here by one faith? Is it the, that all the Ephesians had the same strength of faith? Is the focus here on, on the act of believing? If that's the case, the idea would be that we all have a genuine trust in, in Jesus Christ that unifies us. And, and some do take it that way, that, that the idea is that we just have this genuine trust of Jesus, this one faith, and that's what unites us. But it seems better to me to understand this one faith to mean that there is one body of truth. There is one true faith that exists. There is one faith revealed by God. Clinton Arnold summarized it like this. He said, quote, he's a commentator. He said, quote, this statement is clear testimony to the fact that there is a common faith characterized by a set of core convictions that Christians confessed everywhere the gospel had spread. Paul's statement here assumes that there is one form of Christianity commonly confessed as the one faith and that there were deviant teachings that surfaced from time to time, end quote. Now, this same sense would apply to the deacons in, in 1 Timothy 3.9. You don't have to turn there, but it says deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, the, the mystery of the faith. This would be the one faith. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. In 1 Timothy 4.6, Paul tells Timothy how to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And of course, in Jude 3, Jude famously says, beloved Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And all of these verses, and there's more, speak about an identifiable body of truth called the faith. And there's not many of those. There's there's really only one faith. Now, this doesn't mean that, that we have no room to grow you know, in a few verses later, we're going to see next week in, in verse 13. In fact, are you there? Are you, look, are you at Ephesians chapter 4? Look at, look at verse, um, verse 12. Well, even verse 11. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And so these shepherd teachers, their job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the saints' job is to do the work of the ministry. And all of that together builds up the body of Christ. And this happens, and this continues in verse 13, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statue, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. And so Paul's not saying that there's not room to grow, but what he is saying is that there is one recognizable faith, one body of truth, and that truth unites us, even if we have to grow into that truth and and be taught that truth so that we're no longer tossed to and fro by every kind of doctrine. Now, of course, in our verse, Paul doesn't go into details on what the one faith is. He's just saying that our unity is based on this one body of truth. And of course, where do we find that body of truth? We find it in the word of God. And we'll see that next time, that our job as a church is to to minister, each of us speaking the truth in love so that we can grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ so that we can no longer be children tossed by the waves of, of doctrine, but that we would attain to the unity of the faith. And so there's one faith that unites every believer, even if we have to grow in our understanding of that one faith. Number six, then, we are united because we have the same baptism. We've received the same baptism. Again, in verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, when Paul says here, one baptism, he he hasn't switched away from everything that he was doing in all of these other one statements. And so whatever he's talking about here, whatever this one baptism is, it must be a universal reality for all believers. You see that? It's got to be a universal reality for all believers. Every believer must have this one baptism, which Paul can point to as a foundation for Christian unity. And let me flip it around then the other way. Paul is not all of a sudden giving a command here that there ought to be only one baptism and that that if there was another baptism, it would be a sin, right? You see that? He hasn't switched what he's doing. Now, of course, there's nothing here at all that's tied to the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We already looked at Matthew chapter 12 where that text is, and so there's nothing here about that. Now, he's not necessarily talking about water baptism here either. He would primarily have in mind the baptism of salvation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism that we already saw in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of the one spirit. He's thinking about this spirit that has united us to Christ, this baptism that has united us to Christ, that has joined us to his body, that has, that has brought us to salvation. A few weeks ago, we saw that the word baptism means to dip or to plunge or to immerse, and that that was usually in water. But here, the, the immersion in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, this immersion is an immersion into Christ or immersion into his body, the church. See, every Christian is united to Jesus Christ in this one baptism. And we saw this last time or a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 6, but I'd have you turn back there. Look at Romans chapter 6 
And we'll just start, we'll just do three and four here today. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so here's a baptism, not a baptism into water again, but a baptism into Christ. And what Paul says here is true of all of us. He can speak about all Christians in this way. When we were immersed into Christ, we were immersed into his death. And this is a metaphorical use of the word baptized here. You see, if you were dipped in water and you remained under the water, you would, you would drown in the water. And eventually, the, and, and the word here was, was used for drowning. So if you stayed under the water, you would drown. But in that picture, you, you were under the water, you became one with the water, or you were, you were in the water, you are associated with the water, you are identified with the water because you're in the water. You're connected to the water, and that's kind of the idea of the metaphorical use here. In the same way, when we're spiritually baptized into Christ, we are put into him, or connected with him, or associated with him, or identified with him. We're joined to him, connected, associated, united with Jesus Christ. And verse 3 specifically says that we were united with his death. We died with Christ. His death became our death. His burial was our burial because we are in him. And so the moment that we were saved, we died. Every one of us died. We died to the world. When we were saved, we died to the devil we died to the flesh. We died to all of those three evil realities. And our old life was buried with Christ. Our old life was crucified with Christ. We were also then raised with Christ, made alive with him to walk in newness of life. And this is true of every Christian who is genuinely saved, or as we typically say, of every Christian who was born again. And in Paul's day, in the New Testament, every Christian was baptized in water as a picture of this spiritual baptism that happened when they were joined with Christ, when they were immersed into him. Every Christian was immersed in the water. They went under the water as a picture of their burial, and they came out of the water as a picture of their newness of life with Christ. And so Paul can point back to their water baptism and he say your baptism meant that you were dead to sin and alive to God it's not that one day in the future you will be united with Christ no the idea here is that he can point back and say your baptism showed that you were dead to the world you were dead to sin you were dead to your flesh you were dead to the devil's influence and now you're alive to God the New Testament church practiced believers' baptism. And so Paul could point back to it that way. And Paul could address the church and he, say, and he could say that all of us were immersed. And it means that we died, past tense, and we were raised, past tense, with Christ. This is something that already happened. And so the one baptism here is a spiritual baptism. And once that is true of us, then we should also be physically immersed in the water in obedience to Christ to picture the spiritual reality. 
And so this one baptism, this one saving immersion into Christ, all of us share this together. And then seventh, we are united because we all have the same Father. Let's go back to Ephesians and look at verse 6 here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, our unity is also based on the fact that we all worship the same God. And here specifically, it's the Father who is in view. And He is Father of all. He is over all. He is through all. And He is in all. Now, by now, it should be clear that what, that what we're speaking about here are believers. And so all of these all statements refer to all believers. This isn't true about all people in the world whatsoever. Everything in the context points to believers. Paul is urging the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling. That's for believers. Only believers have been called in this way. The one body, the one spirit, the one hope, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. These were true only of believers. And in the same way, God is the father only of all believers. Now it's true in the, in the next case that he is over all things. But, but Paul is saying here that the father is Lord and master over believers in a special sense. And when it says there that God is through all, the idea is that the one God works through each and every believer. And that's the reason, or that's a reason, to preserve the unity of the Spirit because we recognize that God is working through each and every believer. And of course, God is only in all believers. He's not in all people whatsoever in the world. And so He is in all, that is, he is in all believers. God dwells in each and every true believer, and that's a reason why we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. He is the Father of us all. We've all been adopted into his family. And, and, and the, the, the truth of this verse really applies to all of us. It's helpful as a foundation of our unity. And so if you think about it, that brother or sister, maybe you're, you're tempted to be annoyed with. Well, God is their father. He has adopted them into his family. And he is over them as much as he is over you. And he works through them as much as he works through you. And he dwells in them as much as he dwells in you. And surely if God is willing to endure them, if God is willing to adopt them, if God is willing to dwell in them, then you can be patient with them. You can bear with them. And so it's a motivation then, again, for us to preserve or to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we've seen these seven foundational doctrines that provide the basis for Christian unity. We're unified because we belong to the same body. We're unified because we're sealed by the same Spirit. We're unified because we are called to the same hope. We're unified because we have the same Lord and we have the same faith and we've received the same baptism and we share the same Father. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism and one God and Father. There is one true basis of Christian unity kind of summarized in those seven things. And this unity expands beyond our race. It expands beyond our nationality, beyond our social class beyond our locality, even beyond denominational boundaries to each and every person who genuinely shares these truths. 
This is a unity founded on God himself. It's a unity modeled after God and the unity between each person in the Trinity. And because we are united to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are united to one another. And that's why it's so foolish and empty to try to manufacture unity by denying or diminishing the truth. You see, true unity must be founded on the truth. And Paul understands that. The unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17 has already been accomplished and it's been answered in the church. Now that doesn't mean that we all share the same local body. And it doesn't mean that we should only teach these seven things and really forget about the rest. But it does mean that it's our job in the power of the Holy Spirit and of the indwelling Christ to diligently preserve this unity by walking with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Because to sin against this unity is really to sin against God. Divisiveness is a sin against the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to break unity with a true believer is to deny the truth of God's work in their salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, diligently preserve this unity by walking worthy of your calling. That is the worthy walk. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you don't know how to be in him and to have all of these things true of you, then don't leave here today without asking one of us how you can be saved through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father, we pray this morning. We ask that, well, first of all, we thank you for this unity that you have given us, that you have joined us to yourself in all of these ways, in this one body, by your one spirit, through our one Lord Jesus Christ. You are our one Father. Thank you for this unity that you've given us, Father, and we pray that you would help us to maintain it. We pray that you would help us to diligently keep it and guard it. We pray that the, the truth of this would, would affect our lives and that we would see the, the blessing of unity that we have. We pray that you would help us, like we looked at last week, to walk with all humility and gentleness and patience bearing with one another in love. We pray that you would help us to eagerly maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we pray that we would be a church that goes deep into your truths because we know that your word, that these doctrines are things that that form the foundation of our unity. And so we pray that we would know them well. We pray that we would be a church that grows in our knowledge of the faith and of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, but that we would dig down deep into Christ and into your truth, Father, so that we can walk in this unity, so that the world may believe that you are the Christ and that you are in us the way that you say you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.